Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Reza Zargami about his biography of the Persian king Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Achaemenid Empire that for more than two centuries ruled over lands stretching from the Mediterranean to the Hindu Kush. Reza, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Reza, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I am formerly an environmental attorney. However, I've always been interested in history. This is a fascination, really a passion that goes back to when I was in elementary school. And at first, I was very much interested in the history of Egypt. This had to do for many, uh, many different reasons. One of them was when I was a child, I really grew up in the Boston area. And I remember in around 1988, 1989, uh, an exhibit of Ramses II came to Boston and the city was really decked out. Uh, and there was a large uh, statue of Ramses called the Colossus of Rhodes, which I believe was set up near the Museum of Science. And uh, At that time, I had something like a Sunday school type activity in downtown Boston. And so we would go over there and see this statue. And I was really mesmerized by it. Anyways, I first was interested in the history of Egypt. And then from there, I transitioned over to the history of uh, my uh, homeland. I'm an Iranian-American. My parents uh, were born and grew up in uh, Iran. Uh, And so I transitioned over to having an interest in Iranian history. And uh, I guess I have a bit of an addictive personality because when I focus on something, I really get into it. And uh, beginning in middle school, I couldn't read enough. I mean, I very quickly exhausted all the books on Persian history that were in our uh, town library. And then I happened to, through a family acquaintance, I uh, came to know a professor at Harvard named Richard Fry, who was the head of Iranian studies. He was the Azahan professor of Iranian studies at Harvard University. And I began asking him questions about Old Persian, and through his guidance, I came to get my hands on a book called Old Persian Grammar, Text, and Lexicon. This is uh, uh, written by a uh, professor of Near Eastern Studies. I believe he was at the uh, University of Chicago named Roland Kent. And using that book, I learned to read and write Old Persian. This is something I did when I was 13, 14 years old. And then really from there, my fascination with ancient Iranian history uh, just continued to increase. When I was at uh, Columbia University for my undergraduate, I studied with one of the uh, editors-in-chief of the Encyclopedia Iranica project. When I was at Harvard for law school, I also took some courses. Granted, these were introductory courses with an individual named uh, Prod Dr. Shervo. He's, uh, he was the successor to uh, Professor Fry. And again, I want to emphasize that these were, in fact, introductory uh, courses. It's not like I did in-depth study with him. But nevertheless, these courses did stimulate my mind. I went and I continued to read and began putting pen to paper on this biography of Cyrus, whom I think is one of the three or four great personalities of antiquity, but he's also one of the least well-known. And uh, the fact of the matter is that he has not had an actual 
uh, honest attempt at an English language biography, a historical biography dedicated to his life. Since uh, Jacob Abbott published the book for children back in 1850, so I felt that there was a void there, and uh, I took it upon myself to try to fill that void. And right now, I have a job at a law firm. I am a special counsel at a firm called Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman, but I also have a fellowship in Iranian studies at St. Andrews University. I've been presenting papers there, and uh, so I continue to work on two tracks. One of the things that stands out in your book is it helps to helps to explain why there hasn't been this biography, which is that Cyrus is a ruler about which we don't have a lot of very good sources, and that you spend a lot of time having to engage in this sifting process of deciding what best explains him relative to the other sources. Yes, this is uh, this is one hundred percent accurate. Um, Robin Lane Fox did a historical biography of Alexander the Great. I want to say it was in the early 1970s, and in the it was published in 73. In 73, right? And if you mm-hmm. if you look at the prologue uh, or the introduction to that book, he says that when he was doing his research, he came across over 10,000 sources dedicated to Alexander. There's there are many sources that touch upon Cyrus, but as you indicated, there are not a great many sources that deal with him directly and, you know, use him as really the, 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 the focus of the study, if you would. There's an interesting source going back to antiquity, uh, Xenophon, who was a student of Socrates. He was a uh, commander. He was the general who led the 10,000 Greek mercenaries on the retreat through the western half of the Persian Empire that Cyrus had founded. Now, granted, this took place about 130 years after Cyrus had died. He wrote what was presented as a biographical account of Cyrus called the Cyropedia, or the education of Cyrus. But that's a very complicated work. It's really, uh, it's really a work of Greek philosophy, first and foremost. Some people have called it the first historical romance or novel. There are some elements uh, of Iranian folk history that are present there, but basically this, this very early attempt at presenting a cohesive narrative of Cyrus's life, in many ways, that encapsulates the problem right there. And this is a work that was an effort that was taken several, about 2,000 years ago. The fact of the matter is that we don't have, as you indicated, we don't have a great deal of 100% reliable information about Cyrus. Uh, much, much of what we have, I mean, really in terms of narrative history, we have to look first and foremost to the Greek and Latin authors, and much of what they present is, again, mixed with folk history. It's quasi-legends. They call them the Cyrus sagas. Parts of them read like a fairy tale and obviously are not historical. We have some records from ancient Babylon, which was a territory that he conquered. Uh, But again, we don't know the context in which these accounts were drafted. Were they drafted? I mean, certainly some of the documents were entirely propaganda pieces that were prepared by Cyrus or Cyrus's supporters in Mesopotamia. So to what extent can we truly rely upon them as a, uh, as a trustworthy source for what had happened? And then we have these tangential references. We have references in the Hebrew Bible to Cyrus. We have references to him in Armenian literature. 
and folklore. And what's very interesting is that Cyrus himself, his name was forgotten in his own homeland less than a thousand years after he died, uh, which is fascinating because we have the testimony of Herodotus, uh, of Halicarnassus, the so-called father of history, who says that the Persians of his day referred to Cyrus as their father because he would procure every good thing for them. But 500 years after he died, somehow the name of Cyrus was forgotten among the Persians themselves. And it was really preserved in Iran to this day by the minorities, by primarily the Jewish minority in Iran, because Cyrus's mm-hmm. name appears in the Hebrew Bible. And you devote an entire chapter in your book to that relationship between Cyrus and uh, the Jewish population and uh, the Jewish texts. Yes, absolutely. And it's very ironic, given the, uh, given the, the, the state of the relationship between the present-day nation of Iran and the present-day nation of Israel. But the fact of the matter is that Cyrus has a very good reputation in the Hebrew Bible. He's, in fact, the first figure to be referred to as the Messiah, uh, Hebrew Mashiach. This means the Lord's anointed. It's a title bestowed upon a legitimate king of Israel, uh, traditionally reserved for a member of the Davidic dynasty, a descendant of uh, King David. And we know that Cyrus reached out in the build-up to his invasion and conquest of the Babylonian Empire. He reached out to the Jews who lived within that kingdom. And the Babylonians practiced population deportation at about 586 BC. So this would be about 47 years before Cyrus conquered Babylon. The powerful this was the uh, famous Babylonian captivity. Exactly. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II, he stacked Jerusalem and he brought a substantial portion of its population to Mesopotamia and he planted them there as exiles. This is, as you indicated, the Babylonian captivity. And Cyrus, during the buildup to his invasion of the Babylonian empire, he reached out to these Jews and he seems to have made overtures to them. And he promised to them that if he was to take over, he would actually restore them to their homeland. And if we're to trust the testimony of the Hebrew Bible, that is what he did. He issued a decree soon after he conquered Babylon, authorizing the repatriation of the exiled Jewish population and also the expenditure of state funds to rebuild the Temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem, which King Solomon had built and which Nebuchadnezzar II had destroyed. Well, we're getting a little ahead of uh, you know where we are in Cyrus's life. I was wondering if you could begin, uh, perhaps, by talking a bit about uh, Cyrus's origins. What was, uh, from where was, did he come, uh, into what world was he born, and how does he go, how does he rise to become uh, the ruler of this empire? Well, this is a hotly debated uh, topic these days. Uh, scholarship is divided. There are some scholars who take the opinion, yeah, the traditional view, I should begin with that. The traditional view is that Cyrus was a Persian, that he was a member of a family called the Achaemenids. And this is the same family to which the later kings, uh, such as Darius I, Xerxes, all belong. Now, an interesting, an interesting thing is that we have one inscription of Cyrus in which he actually traces his descent, uh, his ancestry, by naming his ancestors, and he does not mention Achaemenes, who's the eponymous founder of this dynasty. We have other inscriptions in his name at his capital in Persia called Pasargad, which say Cyrus the king, the Achaemenid. But there's a debate among scholars as to whether Cyrus inscribed those or whether Darius 
who would become Cyrus's son-in-law, who would come to power following a palace coup, whether Darius inscribed those in Cyrus's name in order to uh, somehow attach Cyrus to his own family. So there's a debate right now as to whether Cyrus was an Achaemenid. There's also a debate as to whether he was a Persian. There are some scholars who take the opinion that Kurash, which is the Babylonian and Elamite rendering of Cyrus's name. The name is Kurosh in Old Persian. Some scholars take the opinion that Kurash was the original. This is not a form, that a uh, linguistic form that would have been supported in Old Persian, and that the name is originally an Elamite name. Now, the Elamites were people who lived in the southwest of what is today uh, Iran, but they were not an Iranian people. They were not an Indo-European people. And so there are a number of scholars who believe that Cyrus wasn't even really a Persian. There are other scholars, and I tend to agree with this opinion, that Cyrus was a Persian, but he may have had some ties to eastern Iran. And we don't know the nature of those ties, but what we can say is that Cyrus, again, his name was Kurosh in Old Persian. His father and his son were both named Cambyses, and in Old Persian, that would be Cambodia. And there are tribes that are attested in Indian literature as living to the west of the Indian territory. So this would be the area occupied by Iranian tribes called the Kuros and the Kambojas. And based on the recurrence of the names, some sort of affiliation has been postulated. So we don't really know much about his ethnicity, but I, if I may put my lawyerly hat on, I tend to take the position that unless we have strong evidence to the contrary, it's worthwhile to go with the traditional approach because it's less speculative that way. And so I wrote the book on the premise that Cyrus was a Persian and that he was an Achaemenid, but the story doesn't quite stop right there. We do know, and this is corroborated by the Greek sources and also by the Babylonians, that Cyrus's first major conquest was the takeover of Media. The Medes were another Iranian people closely affiliated with the Persians. And what's interesting is when this happens, it's because the Median nobility rebels against its own king and hands him over to Cyrus. And this fits in very well with what some of the classical authors, such as Herodotus Xenophon and Xenophon say, which is that Cyrus, whose father, Cambyses I, was the petty king of Persia, Cyrus's mother was Mandana, who is the princess uh, of the Median king, Astyagis. And so Cyrus seems to have been a half-Persian, a half-Mede. And he also grew up at a time, and this is, I think, important to know, he grew up at a time when the Iranian tribes the Indo-Europeans, the Persians and Medes, they hadn't really been that deeply entrenched in the areas in which they were living. There were an aboriginal people there. We mentioned the Elamites before. There were others who lived in the vicinity. And so there was a lot of cultural, intercultural exchange going on. And there were also, if I may add to this, there were religious dynamics at play. The religion of the area was changing. And so Cyrus grew up really in this multicultural, if you would, setting. And the impression I get is that this very much colored his worldview. And it 
facilitated his adoption of, shall we say, more tolerant and more liberal, more overarching policies that could attract support from a variety of different people. And this, together, obviously, with his military prowess, uh, facilitated his very rapid rise to power and his conquest, which were unprecedented in terms of their territorial expanse and their scale. Yes, because he comes of uh, age, he comes to prominence at a time when the Near East is divided, as you mentioned, between several kingdoms. There previously has not been any record of this single overarching kingdom that of the kind that Cyrus establishes. Uh, absolutely correct. Uh, Cyrus's empire, which uh, at its height spanned from the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean in the west, all the way to the Hindu Kush mountains in the east, from the Sir Darya River, this is in Central Asia, all the way to the borders of Egypt. It covered about 2 million square miles, and it was about five times larger than the greatest state to precede it. And that's astonishing. I mean, it's hard to envision something like that happening in the present day, in the modern era. And the other thing that's very important to understand is that Cyrus formed this empire in the span of about 11 years. He was a king for 30 years. The first uh, decade or so of his reign, we can say, were, it was dedicated to tribal politics, consolidating his position in Persia. And when I say Persia, we should not take it to mean the present-day territory of Iran. It was really the part of the, it was, it, was, it was the southwestern portion of that. And he spent the first decade consolidating his power there. And then it was really the second decade from about 550 to 539 BC when he was actively conquering. And then the final decade, as far as we know, he dedicated primarily to organizing his conquest. And he did a very good job as far as that goes as well. But if you think about it, in the span of a decade, and his people weren't one of those great kingdoms that you had alluded to. Uh, the, the, the great superpower in the era preceding Cyrus was the Assyrian Empire, which ruled over much of what is today Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel. And that had been destroyed in 612 BC by a coalition of different peoples. And so when that happened, 612 BC, I should say, is about uh, my math is failing right now. It's a little over 50 years before Cyrus uh, comes to the throne in Persia. When Assyria falls, the Near East is then divided between four kingdoms. You have the Medes in northwestern Iran. These are an Iranian people affiliated to the Persians. You have the Lydians in the western part of what is today Turkey. You had the Babylonian Empire in Mesopotamia and the Levant. And then you had Egypt. And there's this delicate balance of power. And then again, in, like I said, in the span of a decade, three of those four kingdoms, all of them but Egypt, are taken over. And then a short, several decades later, during the reign of Cyrus's son and successor, Cambyses II, Egypt falls as well. So he very much, and the Persians very much, came out of nowhere at that time. And they really took over what was, for many people, the known world. Which, of course, begs the question, how did they do this? How did they conquer these more established kingdoms with greater, which possess greater resources, greater organization. How is this accomplished? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question. And again, no one exactly knows what the impetus was. Uh, Obviously, military technology and military might had something to do with that. 
the Persians were very good, and the Iranians as a whole at that period were very good horsemen and very good archers. And they, in terms of warfare, they used, the, they used cavalry to envelop their enemies, and they just barraged them with arrows. And the ballistic range of their bows was actually much, uh, these, these were bows that the, the steppe nomads in Central Asia had developed. And the, these steppe nomads were the precursors, if you would, of the uh, Mongols and the Turks, especially in terms of warfare. And so the ballistic range of the Persian bow was unprecedented. Uh, and so they could take out their enemies at a distance. And then they used the cavalry in large numbers much greater numbers than, say, the Babylonians had or the uh, Egyptians or the Lydians. And so they, could, they were able to uh, change the dynamics of a battlefield in a way that had not been, uh, the, these more established kingdoms had not dealt with in the past. But then at the same time, I mean, it's one thing to win a war. It's another thing to maintain rule. And there are, of course, different theories to this. Some would say, for example, that the Assyrian Empire, which I said was the greatest state to precede the Persian Empire, much smaller. The Syrian Empire had to constantly fight in order to maintain its borders because its ideology was really one of terror. And in their inscriptions and in their monumental art, the Assyrian kings repeatedly talked about, boasted about their ability to inflict harm upon their enemies. I mean, there's one inscription that I cite in my book where the Assyrian king talks about taking the, the, the people of a town, taking some of the maidens, some of the young boys and girls. He burned some of them. He chopped off the hands of others. He skinned some. He impaled them. This is very standard. This is pro forma in Assyrian inscriptions. With Cyrus, we get something else. With Cyrus, we, 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 we get a king who really takes pride in achieving bloodless conquest. Um, when he takes over a city, he talks about his city, his soldiers marching the streets with their weapons packed away in peace. And so this is consistent, again, with the point that we discussed, which was the uh, presentation of Cyrus in the Hebrew Bible. We're starting to see a tolerant king, one who does not want to aggrandize his ability to inflict harm. And it's very attractive to think that Cyrus's conquests were in part uh, facilitated by his ability to win over the masses. And we do know that uh, in different areas that he took over, he tried to present himself as a legitimate native king, appealing to native traditions to a degree that none of the prior empire masters, if you would, had done. It strikes me as a sort of an ancient uh, precursor to the idea that our fight is not with you, it's with your ruler. Yes, yes, exactly. And this is something that carried over to the administration as well. Uh, there's one uh, recent text that was a uh, recent uh, scholarly article, I should say, that I was reading. It referred to the Persian, ancient Persian manner of statecraft as political decapitation. In other words, when they took over, they would just remove the reigning uh, king but they would also keep the infrastructure, the pre-existing administrative infrastructure, largely intact. And this also facilitated the transition of power. I was wondering if you could walk us through that decade of conquest. I mean, who, uh, what kingdoms does he conquer first? And uh, if you could relate maybe some of the uh, 
you know, tales of how this was accomplished on the battlefield, how he won his various triumphs against, say, the Lydians and the Babylonians. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, uh, to, lay, to, 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 to lay out the landscape a little bit. So the Assyrian Empire falls in 612 B.C., and there's a brief period of warfare among the uh, some of the sum of the successor states. And then around 585 BC or so, so this is about 25 years before Cyrus comes to power. It may have been around the time he was born. We don't know exactly when he was born. There's a balance of power that's achieved. And so you have, again, in Iran, you have the median kingdom or empire. Some scholars nowadays take the view that this was a much more tribal state than previously thought. It may not have been a really established, fully functional state. Others, ironically, take the complete opposite viewpoint, that it was actually a very centralized, well-run state on the model of the Assyrian Empire. Anyways, this, this state extended as far as we can tell, or dominated, or had some sort of territorial sway from eastern Anatolia all the way to the borders of present-day Afghanistan. And if we were to believe the classical sources, the Persians were a vassal kingdom. Persia was a vassal kingdom uh, of the Medes. So the Median king exercised hegemony over the Persians. Then, of course, you had Babylonia, as I indicated, in Mesopotamia. You had Lydia in western Turkey, and you had Egypt. Cyrus, in about 559 BC, becomes the king, the vassal king of Persia. If we believe that his mother was a Median princess, which I do, and this is uh, the manner in which I've written the book, Cyrus may have been at some point in his life, before he really rises to power among the Persians, he may have been the heir apparent to the Median throne. And the king of the Medes at that time would have been his grandfather, Astyagus. And it's very likely that there was some sort of succession dispute, and Cyrus gets cut out of the succession, and they send him away to Persia, and that's his ancestral fiefdom, if you would. And the send him there, and the idea is that he's away from Ekbatana, which is the median capital. It's supposed to be this magnificent city. Cyrus, of course, being an ambitious person, begins consolidating power. He unifies the Persian tribes, he develops some sort of a military apparatus, and then he declares rebellion in about 553 BC against his grandfather. There's a three-year war that ensues, and what's interesting is that, again, during the course of this war, the median nobility, or a large faction of it, actually supports Cyrus. And in the final battle, which occurs in the Persian heartland in 550 BC, the median army rebels against Astyagus, the median king, and hands him over to Cyrus. And so Cyrus is at this point the king of the Medes and the Persians. He advances to Ekbatana, the median capital, and he takes that. Now, Again, I think here an interesting lesson. Cyrus, if he wanted to become the Median king, if this really was in the context of a succession dispute, he acts accordingly. In other words, he does not really unleash his Persians against the Medes. He spares his grandfather's life. There may have been, there was definitely some transfer of the treasury, if you would, from Ekbatana to Persia. But in the eyes of many outsiders, this was just a dynastic affair within the Median Empire. It's not as if one nation had come and taken over another one, per se. And so Cyrus learns again at that point that to win the support 
of the local aristocracy. And again, he had, he had been supported by the median nobility, and they obviously supported him on conditions. The idea was that if you were to win the war with Astyages, he would uphold their interests. So Cyrus learns that important lesson at this very early stage. This is 550 BC. Now, according to Herodotus, Astyages, Cyrus's grandfather, was the brother-in-law of the Lydian king, Croesus. Croesus did not like to see his brother-in-law be deposed. And now the Lydians and the Medes, before 585 BC, they had had their own territorial battles as well. In fact, the dynastic marriage that unified the two royal houses was part of a peace treaty that was established in 585. This is in the aftermath of the so-called Battle of the Eclipse. This is a battle between the Medes and Lydians, and Eclipse takes place. The soldiers take it as a sign from heaven that they should stop fighting, and so they strike this treaty. But the Lydian king Croesus views with Astyages' disposal, takes the position that that treaty is now null and void, and it's time to revitalize or revive those territorial ambitions that the Medes had in areas under Median domination. And so he invades uh, what had formerly been Median territory. This is territory to which Cyrus now had laid claim. And he goes and he captures a city called Teria. No one, again, really knows where exactly this is, but it has to be in eastern Turkey somewhere. There have been some sites that have been proposed. Cyrus rides out to meet him, and he defeats him in battle at Teria. And then Croesus, this is now late in the campaign season. It's around the time of winter, and so he retreats back to his capital of Sardis. And he expects that at this time, which is, the, which is the norm, because back in antiquity, most of the soldiers were farmers, and so they couldn't go on campaign for more than a few months at a time. He figured that Cyrus would go back to his homeland, they would disband their armies for a while, and then in the next campaign season, everyone would uh, arm up again and then go fight the war. Cyrus, however, chases Croesus to Sardis. He pursues him. And he captures Sardis, and he does something very interesting. You ask for battlefield tactics. The Lydians at that time had a very strong heavy cavalry arm, uh, horsemen who fought with spears. And Cyrus, and this is a tactic that has been used in different contexts throughout Near Eastern history, Cyrus apparently observes during the course of his march through Lydian territory that camels, or at least the types of camels that the Persians had with them, would startle some of the, uh, the local livestock. And so what he does is he puts at the front of his army, he brings all the camels from the baggage train, and he puts them at the front of the army, and he puts a soldier on top of each one, and he tells them to advance. And so the Lydian cavalry, when they charge, the horses freeze up when they see, the, when they see or they smell the camels with their strange... Uh, noise, or uh, I don't know what it's called, if it's, a, if it's a bleeding sound that camels make, whatever. Anyway, the Lydian horses uh, stampede. And so one of the main tactical arms of the Lydian army uh, just basically evaporates on the battlefield. There's still a very brutal fight that takes place. And then we're told after a siege of 14 days, Sardis, the Lydian capital, falls. Now when Sardis falls, Cyrus again According to the classical sources, he spares the life of King Croesus and, in fact, makes him into an advisor. Now, Croesus at that time had also ruled over the Ionian and Aeolian Greeks. These are Greek colonists 
of the Asiatic coast of Turkey. And the Greeks send emissaries to Cyrus, seeking from him the same terms of submission that they had received from Croesus. This does not go over well. During the early stages of his war against Croesus, Cyrus had actually reached out to the Greek cities under Lydian rule, and he had asked them to rise up in rebellion and make common cause with the Persians. With one exception, the Greek cities rejected the offer because they did not expect Cyrus to win the war. So when they came to Cyrus this time, Cyrus rejected their proposal. He said, no deal. And if we're to believe Herodotus, he did so by telling a colorful story. And this is a story in Aesop's fables, a story that he may have just heard. And he said that there was once a fisherman by the sea who wanted to see the fish dance. And so he would come to the beach day after day and he would play his flute. And when at last the fish did not jump out of the water, he lost patience, cast the net into the water, dragged the fish onto shore, and then watching them flop around on the beach, he said, see, you would not dance when I played my tune, but you're dancing for me now. And the, <laughs> and the moral of the story was that he would conquer the Greeks by force. This was perfectly in line with his notion of chivalry at that time. And this is, in fact, what he did. And he unleashed his generals against the Asiatic Greeks. And they conquered them with force. And this does set the tone for the later relations between the Greeks and the Persians, which, of course, culminated in the Persian Wars fought uh, during the reigns of Darius, Xerxes, and obviously the culmination of these hostilities over two centuries was Alexander the Great, who conquered the Persian Empire. But... Cyrus, while his generals were fighting the Greeks and basically extending Persian rule to the shores of the Aegean Sea, he himself was in the east. Um, the Medes and the Persians had migrated to Iran from Central Asia about 500 or 1,000 years before Cyrus came to power. There were Iranian-speaking people all across that area, and Cyrus conquered them all. And these must have been very important campaigns for him, but we just don't have the details, really. We can reconstruct it only based on very general premises. One thing to keep in mind is that he probably also had a strong geopolitical uh, objectives here. About 100 years before Cyrus came to power, steppe tribes, known as the Scythians and Sakas, had invaded the Near East, coming from Central Asia, and they had ransacked and pillaged and raped and murdered and looted and plundered. And this was a very traumatic affair in the memory of the Medes and the Persians, the settled people of that region. And so one of the things that Cyrus did was in Central Asia, he constructed a series of seven fortresses. These would be near the cities of uh, Samarkand and Bukhara and whatnot to serve as a bulwark against further nomadic aggression on this front. And this was actually one of the things that Cyrus does not get enough credit for, is that he was very dedicated, as far as we can tell, to protecting agricultural settlements from nomadic incursions. And toward the end of his reign, he would, of course, sacrifice his life to this end. Now, the Babylonian Empire was still standing, and the Babylonians, if we're again to believe the classical sources, had made the mistake of allying themselves with the Lydians before the Persian conquest of that nation. 
the Babylonians, we, we, we really don't know if we can believe that piece of information 100% or not. There's no strong reason to discount it, but they seem to have been very wary of Cyrus uh, when he came to power. And it was also natural, you know, the, the Iranian tribes had always kind of had their eye on Mesopotamia. It's a more uh, fertile region. Uh, the Babylonians uh, were always wary of this as well. But Babylonia at that time was a really, an, it, was a, it was a country, a city, if you would, in turmoil. The native ruler was someone called Nabonidus. He was not a true Babylonian. He was actually an Aramean or an Assyrian. If we were to believe the sources, he was planning an unpopular reform of the Babylonian religion, one in which he would subvert the cult of the god Marduk in favor of that of his own personal favorite deity, uh, Sin, the moon god. And he alienated, as a result, the Babylonian priesthood. And it would seem that the Babylonian priests established contacts with Cyrus and his camp relatively early on, and that they began spreading pro-Persian propaganda in Babylon, presenting Cyrus as an upholder of the native religion and of the native values, uh, traditional values, I should say. And so the path was paved for Cyrus in 539 when he finally set his sights on Babylon. Now, the Babylonians, during the reign of Nabonidus' predecessors, had expended a great deal of money and energy to protect their country against an attack from the Iranian plateau. They had built something called the Median Wall, which, if we're to believe the sources, again, uh, extended between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Um, they had uh, invested a great deal into fortifying the area around Babylon, the city itself. Babylon was the capital of the Babylonian Empire. They had uh, built moats. The walls of Babylon were supposed to be impregnable. But all it took was one battle, one pitched battle at a place called the Opis, and the Persians won that battle, and then all the great cities of Babylon, one at a time, opened their gates to Cyrus. And Cyrus himself entered Babylon, well, his general first entered Babylon without a battle. And then 17 days after Cyrus's general entered the city, Cyrus himself made his triumphant entry, and we're told that the people of Babylon laid twigs before his chariot, that they hailed him as their native ruler, and that Cyrus, in turn, paid homage to the great gods of Babylon, including the chief deities, whose name is Marduk. And with that, he had built the empire that would basically remain intact until his death would be expanded after his death. Yes, exactly. I mean, these were the core territories of the empire. His son and successor, Cambyses II, who's another shadowy figure. We don't know much about him, but he must have been capable in many respects. He conquers Egypt in 525 BC. Uh, he also takes over territories of Libya and uh, Nubia, which uh, would be the uh, region of northern Sudan. Uh, Darius I, who would become Cyrus' son-in-law, then goes into India. He, he takes over parts of the Caucasus. He solidifies Persian rule in Central Asia. And then he also extends the empire, not just into the islands of the Aegean Sea, but into Europe itself, uh, as far north as the Danube River. 
And so this was a wow. very sizable state. We've been talking a lot about Cyrus's uh, empire building. I was wondering if you could spend a few minutes telling us what we know or what we can surmise about Cyrus himself. What kind of person was he? What did he believe and what was his uh, family like? Well, he was obviously a very ambitious person. He was obvious, He was also a very brave person, a very bold person. I mean, we, we, we touched upon this in the context of his Lydian, uh, his Lydian campaign. In terms of warfare, he would make these Napoleonic thrusts. Uh, we don't know to what extent he was he he, he was personally involved in in fighting. You, you know, there are many stories of how Alexander, for example, suffered wounds and uh, you know engaged in hand to hand fighting. There's a folk account of Cyrus doing that in one of his battles against the Medes. Said that he and two other people killed, I think, 297 people in combat of the enemy soldiers, but. Uh, we do know that Cyrus himself died in battle, so it's actually very likely that he, to some extent he did partake in fighting. And there was this, we have to keep in mind, the Persian nobility at that time was a representative of the warrior class. And so warfare, being a brave soldier, these things were very important to them. He was also, as far as we can tell, a very astute statesman. We don't have the best information about his religious beliefs. This is an area that is largely speculative, but we do know that people as a whole back then tended to be religious. Uh, they tended to take things like omens, this, that, whatever, very seriously. And so we should expect something like that from Cyrus. He could be willful and he could be harsh when circumstance called for it. But he also had this ability, this magnetic personality, if you would. He was able to draw people to him, people of different ethnicities, of different cultural backgrounds. And these are all the different aspects that made him a very successful conqueror and a very successful king. And ironically, a king who, though he may have been loved and he was feared in his own lifetime, he was always respected and his name was hallowed and was treated with dignity. Uh, we don't have anything like a polemic against Cyrus the same way we have against, say, someone like Xerxes. He had a good reputation. And this tells me that he was thoughtful, that he, he was very tactful. And to be thoughtful, to be tactful, to engage in good diplomacy, he also had to have the type of personality that wanted to acquire it. In, you know, information, intelligence, and he knew how to process it. And so he must have had very capable people around him and trusted advisors. And that's another aspect of his personality, that he probably listened to his advisors. He surrounded himself with able people, and he probably gave uh, credence to what they had to say. That, that's one of the things you talk about in your book, which is how he has this, you know, tribal background. And that this is a period of great transition for them. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, he is adopting a lot of the trappings of monarchy in terms of distance, in terms of regality. And yet at the same time, he is not so aloof in his bearing that he does not reach out to and incorporate the advice of 
a lot of people who you know would weren't necessarily imbued with this idea of him as this distant almost godlike figure when he was a young man yeah absolutely i think i i, I think you 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 did a very good job right now of kind of epitomizing what was going on or not a not epitomizing but summarizing what was going on the the thing to keep in mind is that monarchy at that time was the only proven absolute monarchy was really the only proven method for ruling a large empire and part of the reason and and, and there was a trend toward monarchy in iran that even preceded this type of centralized absolute monarchy that even preceded Cyrus. There's good reason to think, for example, that his grandfather, Astyagis, the Median king, whom Cyrus overthrew, but for a while Cyrus again may have been his successor, his heir apparent, his heir apparent I should say, that part of the reason why he had a falling out with his nobles was because he was bent on consolidating and concentrating power for himself and becoming more aloof. And so this was part of the norm. This was what a king had to do. But at the same time, we have interesting, we do have interesting inclinations that Cyrus was not always like this. For example, Herodotus closes out his histories with an anecdote, and he says that the Persians, having now conquered all these different areas, the Persian nobles come to Cyrus and they say, look, our homeland, it's a little barren, it's rocky, there are nicer places we can go to. And that Cyrus, you know, he doesn't overreact or anything, and he just very relaxedly almost says, you can do what you want to do. If you want to leave and go to one of these places, go right ahead. But just remember that if you do this, you're not going to have this empire for much longer. And they ask why, and he replies with the famous uh, idiom, uh, soft lands breed uh, soft men. And he says it's mm -hmm. the property of a single soil to produce good fruit and fine soldiers, too. But the, the, the anecdote I cited here, because it shows that he was approachable. In fact, the story of his final campaign when he dies, we are told that he brings all of his counselors, and he lays out the proposal, and he wants to hear from each one. And the, I, the, the, the question he posed to them is, should we cross this river and deliver battle against the enemy in their territory, or should we let them cross and come into our terrain, if you would, our home turf, and fight them there? And he's very, he's, he's, he, he listens. And Herodotus does, uh, does in his histories, he does draw this distinction between Cyrus and maybe some of the later kings in the dynasty who often refute or turn down the advice of others. Cyrus listens. He absorbs information. He makes his own mind up, but he, he takes into account what others have to say. He doesn't, he's, he's, he's even-handed in, uh, in, 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 um, in that respect. He seems to recognize that um, the... The, the the majesty of the monarchy is, for lack of a better word, a, a pose or a mask, and that he is human and fallible and benefits from listening to other advisors. Yes, uh, yes. I mean, I mean, again, based on based on the available evidence, I, I, 
we can say something like that. What I would say, though, is this, and this is something that I think applies to governments, to leaders of all times. He's someone who came to power. He, he didn't inherit power. He went and he obtained it. And to do that, again, in the reconstruction of events that I've given in my book, he had to betray his grandfather. So he was aware of the pitfall. He probably knew that no king is truly safe, that no one man can do it alone. And so there is a, there is a pragmatic element to this as well. And of course, as you indicated, I mean, uh, the absolute monarchy, you're right. I mean, a lot of it is the pomp, the ceremony. It's intended to make the king seem removed, seem almost godlike, if you would from the masses, from his subjects. But obviously, someone like Cyrus, someone like Darius, these guys knew that they couldn't rule by themselves, that they needed to have trusted advisors, and they needed to maintain the trust. And with all these monarchies, when they begin to decay, it's when that trust breaks down, when Mm -hmm. the relationship between the king and his nobles deteriorates, be it because of court intrigue because of the aloofness of a monarch who loses touch. These things happen. You mentioned that he had uh, to trust a lot of people. And one of the things you do in your book is you don't just talk about the life of Cyrus. You talk about the empire that he uh, constructed or that we can surmise that he constructed, given that there's some details that we don't know exactly when they were put in place. Uh, the satrapies, he appoints important people as, as governors, and it really does seem to be not quite as monolithic as we might necessarily think or by comparison with some other uh, kingdoms and empires throughout history. Absolutely. It, it, again, if we go back to this notion that we touched upon earlier, which is that they built upon pre-existing Cyrus and his successors, they built upon pre-existing administrative frameworks. So they had these satrapies, and the satrap is, uh, it's, it's good to think of him as a governor general, but he was first and foremost, he was really the representative of the king. And the term satrap, in fact, uh, comes from an old Iranian, it's really probably a Median form, shatrapavad, it means the protector of the empire. And the fundamental role of the satrap was to manage relations between the kings and the local elite. In the Western provinces, in a Mesopotamia where there was an organized infrastructure in place, this is more, the satrap acts more like a governor, if you would. In the East, where it is more tribal, he's a power broker, first and foremost. And he uses, he allies himself with certain tribes to keep other tribes in check and so forth. So, so there was a flexibility that was built into the Persian administrative apparatus, if you would. But at the same time, there came with it a great deal of organization as well. And I mean, the empire was ultimately, at the end of the day, it was a, I don't don't want to, I can't think of another term right now, but it was really a money-making operation and enterprise. The idea was you control these territories and you exact tribute from them, taxes, This all comes into the center of the empire where the king is, 
and then it's redeployed as necessary. Uh, and so you need to have good organization for that as well, and the Persians had that. So they had this flexibility, but they also had the good organization. And of course, Cyrus, again, laid the groundwork for this. Uh, to an extent, many of his policies were perfected and executed during the reign of his uh, son-in-law, Darius I. Uh, really, but, the satrapal system, if you would, and the tax and the tribute economy of the empire. That, that flexibility strikes me as being really uh, indispensable, considering the very fact that we're talking about this uh, world empire of unprecedented size and scope. It really did not, uh, you know, provide for a one-size-fits-all approach of government. Right. And if, if it had, it would have failed, most likely. Um, it, it's, again, I mean, the, the lessons that I imagine someone like Cyrus took to heart, and I'm sure he didn't have, obviously, I mean, the historical memory back then was such that you don't have the statistics the way we do now. But, for example, if you, if you consider a state like the Assyrian Empire, during the 120-year period that would mark the heyday of Assyrian rule, the Syrian kings launched 108 wars of reprisal, retribution, reconquest, what have you. And this exhausted the state militarily. And with Cyrus, with the Persians, this flexibility, it was also the more pragmatic approach. The Persians were not a particularly numerous people. So for them to rule this vast empire, which again was much larger, as I said, much larger than any state to precede it, they had they had to cooperate or they had to earn to an extent the goodwill and the cooperation of the local elites in the different areas. And the only way they could do this is by adopting a flexible approach, is by adopting a tolerant approach with respect to, say, religious beliefs. And that's something that they did. And ironically, when Alexander comes in and he takes over, the, he, he's conquering, it's remarkable how many of these different subject nations really fought hard against him, including the Asiatic Greeks, whom Alexander and his propaganda declared that he was out there to liberate them from Persian rule. They fought him, they fought him tooth and nail. Uh, you go down the, you know, after some battles, it was the Arabs living near Gaza. They fought him very, uh, you know, very hard. And then the same thing in the east. And uh, th there's a saying in, uh, th there's a passage in Curtius Rufus, and he says that Darius III, after he had lost his homeland, you know, Persia itself had fallen, he goes into the eastern land, and he talks about how, he calls them the barbarians, it really means the non-Greeks in this region. They view the Persian king's name with such respect, and they muster at, the, at his call ready for war. And so this is, again, something that speaks to, like you said, the flexibility and the benefit of adopting a flexible approach in terms of statecraft, that you can keep this type of state, this large empire together, and you can mobilize the people. And I think that contrast with Alexander is really, uh, you know, is, is really telling. Whereas Alexander's empire falls apart very soon after his death, you have uh, Cyrus's empire, which lasts two centuries. Absolutely, absolutely. And when Cyrus himself dies, there is, as far as we can tell, a very smooth transition of power. 
the real, there is a moment of crisis, however, within a decade of Cyrus's death, and that's when his sons uh, turn on each other. And uh, again, this is one of those things, it's one of the great detective stories of antiquity, but if we follow the uh, traditional narrative, one son, Cambyses II, kills the other secretly, goes off to Egypt, an imposter arises, and then Cambyses dies on the way back to fight the imposter. And at that point, when the empire is leaderless, rebellions flare up everywhere. But the man who puts them all down and then sets the empire back on a solid footing is Darius I. And so he, along with Cyrus, deserves the credit for establishing the state that lasted for two centuries. Uh, how does Cyrus himself die? Cyrus, uh, Cyrus, most likely he dies in combat. Again, we have varying, uh, uh, we have different accounts. Herodotus gives us a very colorful account of Cyrus going to war against the nomadic queen in Central Asia. Her name is Tomyris. She's the queen of the Masagetai. And according to Herodotus' story, Cyrus falls in battle. He is beheaded. His corpse is beheaded. And the head is taken to Tamiris, who plunges it into a bowl or a skin full of blood. Uh, this is this makes for great romance, if you would, or storytelling. But it's most likely it's it, it's it's not true because we know when Alexander uh, enters Cyrus's tomb in 330 BC, he sees the conqueror's body there, Cyrus's body there, preserved in wax. But we have it from other sources, including one source who drew upon Babylonian records that Cyrus died. Uh, Somewhere in the northeast, it said, in the territory of the Dahar, who lived to the east of the Caspian Sea, and he fell in battle over there. I should say that one source, Xenophon in the Cyropedia, gives Cyrus a peaceful death in old age. Um, some scholars have said that this is because he thought it was unbefitting to have the hero of his work die in combat. Uh, I just a couple of years ago, I prepared a paper for the Harvard Center on Hellenic Studies talking about how that motif of Xenophon's account of Cyrus's death may have gone back to a story very similar to the tale of how Romulus, the eponymous founder of Rome, died, and that is that he may have gone into occultation. There was a whirlwind and he disappeared. These are the types of stories that were told about great men in antiquity, but most likely he died in combat. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, I was wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now. Well, I'm working on, uh, I have several projects in this regard. I'm working on the sequel to Discovering Cyrus. This would be the second book in Iran's Age of Empire. It would be the history of Darius. And then I'm doing also several papers talking about the interplay between legend and history in the accounts of the ancient Persian kings. Well, they all sound very fascinating, and I hope we can have you back when your uh, book on Darius comes out. I hope so, too. It's a pleasure and an honor. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Reza, for taking some time to tell us about your biography of Cyrus the Great and the empire that he built. Have a wonderful day. You, too. Thank you.